really thought I could bookmark this faster than this. There we go. Welcome to episode 18 of The Plan. We are telling the story of the Bible from beginning to end, and we've been working on this since September. And so we're a good portion of the way in. Last week, we told the story of David's reign over the kingdom of Israel. And what we've been finding is that the whole, whole story of the Bible is driven by one plot. And that plot is the, uh, is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. God made the world, and he put people in it, and he wants us to rule over the earth on his behalf. And then he wants to live here with us. And that's how things started, and then we messed it up. And the Bible is the story of God putting, those, putting that plan, uh, putting that design back into action. And that's where we know the story is going to end. At this point, we are in the phase of the kingdom of Israel. So this is how God's plan is working. He has chosen one people and has given them a particular place. And they're supposed to rule over that place according to his law. And he lives there with them. And that means that other, anybody else can look at Israel when they're doing it right and see what's happening in Israel and the way they're living and will be able to learn about God, understand who God is from what Israel's doing. Now, we left off the story during the time of David, and David was a, was a, started out as a very good king. He was very obedient to God, much more so than Saul, the first king, was. He obviously committed a pretty significant sin, and it, it caused some significant problems in Israel. But ultimately, David's loyalty was to God. He didn't follow any other gods, and he came back when he sinned, and he followed God, and so God was able to use him to build this kingdom. But Saul, uh, David is going to die, and his son is going to take over. Solomon, uh, Solomon is going to take over, and Solomon has a particular mission. And that's the story that we're going to be telling today. So as I read the opening section of the story, remember the coordinates that we use to keep our bearings as we read through the Bible. First of all, people. Who is the story about? Then we watch for place. Where is their home? Presence is how are they able to meet with God? And then purpose is what has God called them to do? We want to have those points in place before we move into the rest of the story. So the first three chapters of Kings we're not going to read except for the very end because it starts off with Solomon's older brother tries to take over the kingdom before David dies. And so David, uh, who remember last week we talked about the fact that God had chosen Solomon to be the next king. So David uh, makes Solomon king while he's still alive. And then he tells Solomon, all right, once I die, here's the list of people you need to kill to, to hold on to power. And so David dies, and Solomon finds a way to kill all of those people. It's like a scene from The Godfather. Uh, He kills all these people, and then these are the people who had been undermining David during his reign, people who might take power from Solomon. Uh, Basically, Solomon, well, you'll see. So we're going to read just the last verse of that section and see the results. The king gave the order to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shammai down, and he died. The The kingdom was now established in Solomon's hands. So Solomon is king. Then we move into chapter 3. It says, uh, The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. We're going to pause there. We're going to get our bearings. Uh, So who is this story about? It's about Solomon and the Israelites. The Israelites are God's people. 
So he's working through the Israelites, but Solomon is the anointed king. So he is the person chosen by God to lead them. So he has God-given responsibility to lead the Israelites in accomplishing God's plan. Where is their home? Their home is the kingdom of Israel, and now it is truly a kingdom in all respects. David, if you remember from last week, David conquered all of the rebellion, all the uh, Canaanite cities that were still independent in the land of Israel. He also conquered most of the surrounding nations, and, and it's really an empire that he's been able to hand Solomon that, that is powerful. It controls the major trade routes between two continents, between Africa and Europe, or between Af- Africa and Asia. And it's safe and it's prosperous. It's the high water mark for the kingdom of Israel in terms of their prosperity and their power. How can they meet with God? Well, this part's still a little tricky. Remember, the ark was captured by the Philistines, and when they got it back, they didn't reunite it with the tabernacle. And the plan, uh, the, the law that God gave says that you can meet God's presence at the ark in the tabernacle. Well, right now, the ark is back in Israelite hands in Jerusalem because David brought it back. Okay, so that is, you can actually make sacrifices at the ark and have some kind of access to God's presence there. But you may notice that when Solomon wants to have his his first meeting with God as king, he doesn't do it in Jerusalem, he does it in Gibeon. Now, why does he go to Gibeon? Well, there's actually another book that tells the same stories about the kings from another angle, it's called Chronicles. And if you read uh, the version in Chronicles, you find the answer says, Solomon and the whole assembly went to the high place at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses the Lord's servant had made in the wilderness. So the ark is in Jerusalem, but the tabernacle is in Gibeon. And those are both part of God's design for how his people are supposed to be able to meet with them. Now they haven't been, they aren't, the ark isn't in the tabernacle like it's supposed to be, so they're in two separate places. But it seems like there are, there are two places where you can get kind of imperfect access to God. Now, the last question is, what did God tell them? At this point, what did God tell Solomon to do? Well, there's three things that I want to highlight here. The first one has been made very clear over the last couple of sermons is that the king's job is to obey God, right? That's what we learned from Saul's fiasco and David's uh, victories and failures is that the king is supposed to obey God. Now, that involves a lot of things, so I'm going to highlight two specific things that will come up for Solomon. The first one is the specific mission that Solomon had been given by God that he spoke to David when he made the covenant with David that David's family would rule over God's people forever. He says, when your days are over, he says this to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, the specific job that Solomon has been given is to build the temple. Now, there's one more thing that we need to highlight. You may remember for a few weeks now, we've been going back to this passage in Deuteronomy 17 that gives the laws that a, that a king is supposed to follow. There are laws specifically for when Israel has a king. And we've looked at most of them, but here's the last part that we haven't looked at. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. So the last really important rule for us here is the king is not supposed to hoard. 
And if you want to put more detail, specifically, he's not supposed to hoard horses, wives, or money. Okay? Depending on how big you write, you may specify all of those in your notes. I would not be able to fit that, but... So, those are, the, those are the instructions he's been given, and now, as we return back to the story, Solomon is having a dream where God has offered him any request. He, he, will, he can ask for anything he wants, and this is a major test for Solomon's character. And we're going to see how he responds, and I've, I want you to notice there's a certain phrase that he repeats that I've underlined, that it's really important for seeing Solomon's attitude as he responds to God. He says, now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David. But I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? That was pretty much a perfect answer. The phrase that was underlined was your servant. That's what he calls himself as he's speaking to God. He also calls himself a little child, which is not accurate. He's, he's a man, but he's, he's describing his relationship to God. He recognizes that he serves at God's pleasure, that this is, these are God's people, and he is the servant of God. And so he wants to serve well as, as um, you know, under his Lord, under God, right? And so he asks for wisdom, he asks for the ability to do his job well according to God's design. Because that's what wisdom in the Old Testament, that word, what it means, is it means doing things basically the way they were designed to be done, doing things the right way. And so he wants to lead according to God's design. So Solomon asked God for wisdom to rule God's people well, which is a very good request. And God recognizes that. And so this is how he responds. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, so God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in, in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings." And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So God acknowledges that this was exactly the right thing to ask for, and he says, absolutely, I will give you wisdom. I will give you more, I'll make you more discerning than anyone's ever been. And because you asked for the, the right thing, I'm also going to give you those things you didn't ask for. I'm also going to make sure that your kingdom is prosperous, you're going to be wealthy, you're going to be respected, you're going to have all those things that a king would have asked for if they were being self-centered in this moment. So now David has everything a king could want. He has a, a peaceful empire that his father has left him. He has wisdom to rule well. He has God makes him incredibly wealthy, incredibly prosperous, and, uh, and honored, and, and everybody respects him. And what does he do with that opportunity? In 1 Kings 6, it says, in the, in the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. So God gave Solomon wisdom, wealth, and peace, and Solomon built God a temple. Now the thing is, there is no temple in the law of Moses, right? The, temp the law of Moses describes a tabernacle. And so there would be a legitimate question, is this 
part of God's design. Is this right? Is God, if God doesn't do something to show that he's chosen the temple, it's just a building, right? And so there's this moment that's of tension, this kind of a, a, a suspense, as they put all of the items that, were, that would have been in the tabernacle, they move all of that equipment into the temple. And the last thing to go into the temple is the ark. And the question is, is this going, is, does God, is God going to honor this? So they put the ark in the Holy of Holies, in, in the, the center room, and when the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. This was the exact same thing that happened when they put the ark in the tabernacle. And so this shows that God lives in the temple now. So God has come to live in his home, and this, this is taking over for the tabernacle, which means that that long period of separation where the ark was not in God's house has ended. That whole plot line that started back with the defeat of the, the Israelites at the beginning of 1 Samuel has finally been resolved. So God's presence uh, filled the temple like it had filled the tabernacle, and now he is restored with his people. This is a really, really important moment in the story of the Bible. And if you keep track with the elements of the plan, then you'll see how important it is. Because uh, let's, let's check the scores, okay? So right now, the people of Israel, God's people, they all live in one place together in, in the land of Israel. The land of Israel is completely in Israelite hands, uh, and it's, it's secure, and it's prosperous. So we have the people, we have the place. We have the presence of God is now fully restored among Israel, and we have the wisest king who's ever lived administering justice and ensuring that the people of Israel follow, uh, live out their purpose and follow the law, right? We have all, for the first time in the whole story since Eden, we have all the pieces of the plan together. Everything is working properly. And this is the golden age of Israel. And you can tell, because there's this other story that may seem just like maybe not all that important, but it's actually crucial for seeing what, what God has achieved in Israel at this moment. Uh, remember what God told Abraham that he was going to be a blessing to the nations. And the way I've been describing that to you for, for weeks and weeks now is that people should be able to look at Israel and understand who God is, Right? They, suppose they can come to Israel, which just happens to be on a major trade route between two continents. They come to Israel, and they see what makes Israel different, and it, it brings glory to God, and they can, they can know something about God. Well, there's a story in chapter 10 of 1 Kings where a woman comes from a place called Sheba, which is somewhere in Saudi Arabia. We're not quite sure where, but it's a long ways off. This woman is the queen of Sheba, and she comes to Israel because she has heard about Solomon. And so she comes in with this, with this train of, you know, she brings all these gifts to, to, to make sure she can get an audience with this, with this king. And she tests him with riddles, and he gives her a tour of his buildings, and she sees the temple, and she's, she sees this kingdom that God has built around Solomon. And this is what she says. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. 
Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. Now, a lot of what she says is about Solomon. But remember that Solomon, as the king of God's people, is supposed to be a reflection of God. And what she sees in Solomon and this kingdom is that through Solomon wisely ruling this kingdom, there is justice and righteousness. And she sees that that must be what the God of Israel wants. And she recognizes that this is a good place. And God must be a wise God for having created a place like this. And so what's essentially happening here is the plan is being fulfilled. On, On the scale that it can be fulfilled at this point in the story, it is happening that people are coming to Israel and they are seeing a kingdom that is following God and they're seeing seeing the plan working properly. So under Solomon, God made Israel a beacon of wisdom and righteousness to the world. This is exactly what Israel was supposed to be doing at this stage in the story, at this stage in the plan. It's not the, the ultimate goal of the plan, but it is, it is the goal of Israel's job, right? But it doesn't last. And it doesn't even last Solomon's lifetime. It doesn't even last in Solomon's heart. So even though Solomon is, is, the, is the wisest king who ever lived, he still strays away from God's design. And the fact that Solomon can be tempted away means that we should all pay attention to what happens to him. Because the temptation that he faces is a temptation that every single one of us face. In chapter 11, Solomon's story changes. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father has been. He followed Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not, completely fo- he did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. Tale as old as time, right? How many of us have been led astray by our 700 wives and 300 concubines, right? Like, it's just classic story, right? Happens to all of us. Well, here's the thing. I always thought that Solomon's downfall was his libido. I thought it was his relationship with these women. I thought he was being, being pulled aside by lust. But that's misunderstanding the context of what's going on. See, Solomon was not like wandering around these foreign nations, seeing women that he was attracted to, having meet cutes with them in coffee shops and, and marrying them. They were sent to him as political marriages. And he married them because they were representatives of those kingdoms, not because he had fallen in love with them. In fact, the word for love that is being used here is not romantic love. It's actually political love. It's the same word that's des- that is used to describe the way the king, king Hiram of Tyre feels about Solomon and felt about David. That word for love 
is actually a political loyalty or a faithfulness to a treaty is actually what that word means. See, what would happen is you would marry a member of the a foreign nation's um, royal family, and that woman was basically a, an ambassador. And so when she came, she was expected to be able, she represented her kingdom, which means she had to continue to serve their gods, which means she was entitled to having a place to worship. It was part of the terms of the treaty. And so as he formed treaties with all these different countries and he married their wives, part of the treaty was that he would give them a place to worship. And so he loved them in the sense of of following through with that commitment and giving them all places to worship and building places to worship the gods of all these different countries in Jerusalem. He wasn't in love with 700 women or 1,000 he was loyal to those commitments that he made because those built up his empire. That's how he built the empire of Solomon, was through all of these trees, at least in his mind. That's how he thought he was building this empire. And so when it came to a question of, for him, it came to this moment of, I can, I can expand my power and influence by making this marriage, but it requires me to break the law of God Uh, So I have to choose between expanding the empire this way and obeying God, and he chose to expand the empire in a way that was disobedient to God. And when you recognize that that's what Solomon is doing, then you start to read back through his story, and you realize that this is the climax of a trend that has been happening throughout his entire reign. We rewind to chapter 10. We notice this little element that if you don't have Deuteronomy memorized, may not seem that important. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses, He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Now, we'll pause here. Remember that chariots are the cutting edge of military technology. So this is like his nuclear arsenal, his his aircraft carrier fleet, his F-22 Raptors. Like, this is the, like, his drones. This is, you know, whatever the cutting edge is, that's what chariots were. So he's building up an arsenal. But where do you think he got the horses? Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt. And from Q, the royal merchants purchased them from Q at the current price. So where were they not supposed to get horses from? Egypt. So notice the trend. He's worshiping foreign gods, and he's amassing Egyptian horses. Uh, then we rewind back a little farther. And how did Solomon build all? Because he built the, tabern- the temple. He also built his, this amazing palace. How did he build those? Who built those? Well, first, he... Uh, he uh, enslaved all the Canaanites, but that wasn't enough labor. So King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Now, one theory is, so he has to send these guys up to Lebanon to cut down the trees and bring them back. And another theory is maybe he had enough Canaanites, but if he sent Canaanites off, they, would just, they wouldn't come back. Because if you're a slave and you get sent away, you're not going back, right? So he had to use Israelites because they'd come home. But the point is, he's enslaving Israelites. Now, who else do we know that worships foreign gods and has Egyptian horses and enslaved Israelites? He doesn't look like David anymore, does he? He looks like Pharaoh. In fact, if we rewind to the very beginning of this story, one little note that happened between all those godfather killings and going to Gibeon, Chapter 3 starts out this way. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. It's the first thing he actually does as king. 
So what we realize is that the entire time Solomon has been building the kingdom of God, he has also been building the empire of Solomon. He probably didn't think of it that way. But at a certain point, there was... uh, Sorry, so uh, while he was building God's kingdom, Solomon started building his own empire. And for a while there, they mostly overlapped. Right? It was God's plan to bless Solomon, to give him a strong, wealthy empire and, and to a stable rule and all these things that Solomon also wanted for himself. But then there came, a, there came a moment, and then another one, and then more and more moments when Solomon's self-interest diverged from God's kingdom, the interest of God's kingdom, and he had to make a choice each time. And more and more often, Solomon made the choice that built the empire that he wanted. He made the treaties that he thought would give him the kind of influence he wanted. He married the women from the kingdoms that he wanted to be on good terms with, where he could get the best deals for, for uh, you know, commercial deals and, and the best um, tariffs and, and whatever it was. And eventually, he was completely absorbed by this, this um, all these gods that it brought into the kingdom. And completely, he, he was enslaved. I don't know that he was ever really, like, why did he worship these other gods? I don't think it was because he found them more appealing than the God of Israel. I think it was because he got sucked into this. He was committed to building up his alliances this way, and he, he would do whatever it took to build the empire of Solomon. And just like God responded very well to Solomon's wisdom, in the beginning of his reign, he responds very negatively to Solomon disobeying and building his own empire. The Lord said this to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So there's a little bit of a spoiler for next week, but he's going to split the kingdom into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and immediately that empire is going to disintegrate because those two warring factions can't hold on to the empire of David. And so it's all going to fall apart, and what you're going to be left with is two little stub kingdoms that will never again regain the prominence of David and Solomon. Because God is not going to let them build their empire on the back of his kingdom. And so the king, but God is still going to honor the covenant. And so there will be a, a son of David on the throne in the tribe of Judah. But Judah will never be capable of building an empire like what Solomon had. So God determined to break up, the empire, break up Solomon's empire while still honoring his promise to David. And unfortunately, this, this precedent that Solomon has set is going to continue through generations of kings because we've now had David, who is the, the obedient king that God wanted, that God chose. That's what it means to be the one man after God's own heart. And he failed. We have Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived, and he failed, and he built his own kingdom, and and the succeeding generations are going to follow those same patterns that we're going to see throughout the next few sermons, Um, and we're never again going to get to this place 
uh, this, this golden age. Apparently, that something needs to change in people. Something needs to change in us to make that plan possible. And this is where we really begin to see it's not going to work just by God giving us opportunities. He needs to change us. Now, as we reflect on this story, what does it have to do with us today, right? None of us are kings. None of us have empires. None of us are being tempted to form alliances through marriage with foreign kingdoms. But we are, each of us, entrusted with authority, with influence. Whatever God has given you, he has given you for a purpose, and he wants you to use that influence, use that power, use whatever he's given you according to his will. And so as we are entrusted with that, we can learn from Solomon's good example and bad example. The first thing that I want to highlight from this story is that human beings are constantly tempted to build our own empires of happiness and success. Actually, I, 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 this morning I thought I shouldn't have used the word tempted in this one um, because we, we, are, we are building our own empires of happiness and success. And I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to be putting our lives together in such a way that we have stable lives, that we're able to provide for our families, that we're able to you know, have a, a college fund for our kids, you know, that we are, we are doing things to make our lives stable and pro- to um, provide for our families. Uh, but we are constantly doing that, right? We're constantly making decisions that, that orient our lives in a way that we can be happy, that we can be successful. Uh, everybody has that as a goal, right? And so that, that directs a lot of, most of our decisions. And a, a lot of times, that as we're doing, I mean, God, God wants what's best for us. And so a lot of that falls in line with his plan. But The problem is that those empires always tempt us away from God's kingdom because we will always face a point where we have to make a decision between obeying God and building our own empire our own way. I mean, the simplest, most obvious example would be that if you wanted to be the most wealthy that you can be, you would not give money to a church or a charity or to the needy, right? And so when you have an opportunity to give to others, you're facing a decision. Am I, going to, you know, am I going to invest in my own prosperity or am I going to invest in the kingdom of God? Now that's a very simple example. But it happens to us all the time in terms of the way we choose to, you know, what we choose to be our careers or the way we choose to invest in relationships. Uh, sometimes, you know, God probably wants you to invest in relationships that, that um, may take some work. You know, you may have to go outside of your comfort zone or you may have to spend time that you could have spent binge-watching binge something at home or, you know, that kind of thing. There are a lot of things that God calls us to do that would build his kingdom and may not immediately contribute to the empire I want to build of my own happiness and my own um, prosperity, my own success. And those moments are the moments when we have to decide what we're going to build, who we're going to serve, And we really have to decide what is the purpose of our lives. Because more and more what we are told in the world is that our lives are measured by how happy we can be. That a life is measured by how happy you can be, how successful you can be, how prosperous you can be. That that is what should govern all of our decisions. What makes you happy? What do you want to do? What will, and, and we have to decide, is that really what our lives are about? Because the message that the Bible teaches and the story of the Bible teaches is very different from that. 
And there's a book that is uh, incredibly challenging but also incredibly rewarding called Ecclesiastes. And in that, the majority of that book is told through the eyes of Solomon as a character, as a great example of someone who faced this issue. And here's what Solomon says about uh, looking back on everything that he accomplished in building his own empire. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and, it was the, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. There's a sense of emptiness throughout this book that, that the idea of, of achieving all of these, these goals of personal uh, happiness and success and, and all these things, that, that they accomplish nothing more than that. That the, ultimately they're empty. And this isn't to say that everybody who's rich and selfish will die miserable. I bet there are a lot of rich, selfish people who are happy when they, you know, they're, they're content with the way they live their lives all the way to the very end. But that is to say that even though they were happy, that life was not fulfilled. That life was not what it was meant to be just because it was wealthy, and it is not necessarily better than the life of a much poorer person. Because the conclusion of that book reads this way. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The ending of this story tells us that God is going to look at every life. And I'm not sure that the point here is for you to be afraid of of bad judgment and damnation, I think it's more for you to realize that there is a higher standard by which your life is judged than simply how you felt about it and how happy you were. That your life is designed with a purpose. It was made by a person, by God. With a, 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 he has a, a will for you. He designed you to fulfill a function. And, and he's going to look at your life and see whether, whether it served that function. And so what that tells us is that we're not creatures designed for pleasure. We are creatures of purpose. We are fulfilled by serving God, not ourselves. And so that means that the best life you can live may not be the one full of the most short-term happiness. It may not be the one with the biggest bank account at the end or the nicest toys at the end or the most friends at the end. That you were made for a purpose. But I don't want to say this as a source of guilt or a source of feeling empty because that's, that's how Ecclesiastes really feels. But... Uh, it, there can be a profound sense of emptiness as you read Ecclesiastes, but that's because the emptiness of Ecclesiastes points us to the future in the Bible. It points us to the peace that is missing in Ecclesiastes. It points us toward Jesus. Because when Jesus describes what he offers us, he offers us a life of fulfilling God's purpose. That's when he offers us the kingdom of God. He offers us a life of fulfilling that purpose. And here's how he describes his mission. He says, I have come that they might have life 
and have it to the full. That's actually different than what you have in your bulletin. I changed it, so you may want to change that if you want to remember it. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Because when we live God's purpose, that is the life you were made for. When God knit you together, everything he gave you, every talent, every skill, every quirk, everything he gave you was intentional. And he had a purpose for you. And that purpose was to build his kingdom where he's put you. And it's not always going to be easy. But the important things often aren't. The fulfilling things often aren't. And what we learn as we follow God's design is we can actually live without a lot of the things that we chase in our lives. I have to continually remind myself, if I don't buy that thing, I'll be fine. If I lose those possessions, I'll be fine. As much as I'm trained not to think that way. But what will truly fulfill me in this life is to live the life God has called me to. And when it comes to eternity, imagining how fulfilling it is to live God's life, there's no comparison. Because that's the only real life that's available to us, the other side of glory, is the life God has called us to. So Jesus invites us to follow him and become exactly what we were made to be. Because as we give our lives to him, he can change us. He can make us into people who can follow that calling. He offers us something that Solomon and David didn't have. Salvation, transformation through the Holy Spirit. Hope that we can be who God's called us to be. And that hope is available to you today. And so as we, as we close, I want you to consider what decision God has put in front of you. Every time we hear the gospel, we hear the word of God, we have an opportunity to respond. And there are a lot of ways you could respond, but I'm going to mention a couple of them. One thing that could be uh, before you today is the decision to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you've never committed to the mission that he has for you, the plan that he has for you, and today is the best day to do that. Maybe you have given your life over to him. Maybe you have surrendered your empire, but you find yourself trying to pick the pieces of it back up trying to go back to building the empire. Maybe you need to give your life back to God. Today is a great day to rededicate your life to God. Maybe you need a group of people who will come alongside you and help you in that journey. That's what our small groups are for. We'd love for you to sign up for our small groups, and you can check that box in our Connect card. You can also check the box for a service team if you want an opportunity to give back to, to the church or to the community a way to serve others. And finally, if you want to be part of a body of believers that are dedicated to building God's kingdom and to surrendering and resurrendering the empires that we build, that's who we seek to be as a church. We are a people who come together to serve God and to build his kingdom and to surrender our empires as often as we need to. And if you want to be a part of us, you can place your membership with us. You can use your Connect card to sign up for a Connect class where we'll get together over some food and talk about who the church is and how you can be a part of it. So I'd invite you to consider what choices God may be calling you to make, what steps he may be calling you to take as we stand and sing our final song.